Hello and welcome to the Wisdom Cricket Weekly Podcast. As you all know, this season we are being sponsored by Kia UK. Kia's brand is all about movement that inspires and looking to the future. Kia is fast becoming a leader in electrification with their many award-winning electrical cars. The Kia EV6 is a fully electric crossover that boasts leading-edge technology and has a huge range of up to 328 miles. If you want to find out more about this amazing electrifying range, then visit the link we'll leave in the description. I'm Yaz Rana, and to look back at another all-time classic of an Ashes Test match is Mel Farrell and Beg Gardner. Uh, but first, let's head to Mark Butcher to hear his thoughts on the game. Butch, that was one hell of a test match. Um, ben Stokes became the second Englishman to score a fourth innings. Ashes 150. Uh, off of someone else. I can't remember who the other person was. Um, <laughs> why Why do you think Stokes can do those innings and others just can't? And he's, he's done it quite a few times now. Yeah, yeah. I mean, what have we got? We've got two World Cup finals heading the 2019 and, and then almost yesterday. Um, I, honestly, I don't know. I mean, he's just... He's, he's a very different animal to most other people. You know, he'll kind of, it's almost as though the, 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 the situation has to be lost before um, his best, his best stuff comes out. Um, and, and I don't know, you know, I don't know what that is, what that says about his makeup and his psychology, but I mean, he's an absolute Titan, isn't he? In that situation. I, I, I had the, the opportunity to interview, well, not interview, but sort of was in an in an interview with Joss Butler on the TV during the, the rained off Roses match on Friday. And I kind of, I made a point of asking him about that when he was looking at players, how does it, because I thought that Joss in his younger days, what stood out about him most was how brilliant he was, how ice cold he was in exactly the same sort of situation. I said, how do you see that in, in other players? And kind of, we ran out of time because what I was getting at was, it was obviously going to be talking about whether whether he'd want Ben to come back for the 50 over World Cup. But um, we got kind of got cut off and I didn't get to ask him that question because that's entirely it, isn't it? His his makeup, his mentality is kind of like that he is more turned on by that sort of situation, by the by the sort of situation that makes most people wilt than he is about the, the mundanity of having to score first in his runs um, to set a game up, you know. Uh, and and what that says about him is is for the psychologist to tell you, but it's uh, it's certainly compelling. And and one thing that it's done that along with another incident, I can't. We might talk about it. I don't know. Um, has sort of overshadowed what was a a pretty limp performance from his team um, throughout the course of the test match, really. Mm. Um, so you know that and uh, and and the other incident, or there's two incidents, weren't there? But the incident have kind of meant that the, the conversation around England's bowling in great conditions on day one, their batting in great conditions on day two, has all been overshadowed by what happened on the last, you know, the last sort of two, uh, the last two days of the game. Mm. Um, you know, I like like a stat. I think the most misleading stat in the world might be that Stokes averages 36 with a bat against Australia. That just, just doesn't tell you anything. Um <laughs> You, none of his none of his numbers do, do they? I mean, they're kind of his numbers are very sort of un, unremarkable. But mm. but the things that he does, the moments that he steals, are utterly remarkable. You talked about England being limp on a, on a few occasions. The, the the batting collapse on day two, the where when batting conditions were very good and Lyon's gone off the field, we cover that on one of the daily podcasts. I just wanted to ask you about how you thought England bowled. On day one, conditions were as good for bowling as they were at any point, not just in the match, really, but the series. And England were fine. They weren't bad, 
but they weren't great either. And that was kind of a passage of play. You feel that if Australia had that opportunity, they wouldn't have let it slip in the same way that England did. Yeah, I, I think you're right. I mean, you know, when when you put a team in and they get 416, that's that's not what you were after, is it? Let's let's be honest. Um, uh, they just seem to lack just lack a bit of an edge, really. Um, it, it was just, I mean, and, and I don't mean that in terms of you know getting in Australia's face. It just kind of weren't that the ball wasn't doing anything at, at enough pace to cause anybody any problems, and that's and that's an issue. It's going to be, and it was a stark issue when. Obviously, when Australia decided to, when they came out to bowl, or when they decided to go to the short ball ploy, which just looked infinitely more dangerous, um, we might have a chat about that short ball thing as well, if mm. uh, if you'll forgive me. But um, but yeah, so um, to concede four hundred and then and then concede a lead of ninety, having been one hundred and eighty odd for for one, was just was just bad cricket, really. And I kind of got fed up with fielding, um, you know, fielding messages from people on on socials around about, you know, oh, well if you if you praise them when they do it great, then you then you kind of got to go with it when they when they mess it up. And and I'm thinking to myself, I watched and commentated on the Test matches last summer, um, and not at any point did England have, seeing a moment or finding a moment in the game whereby they had to they might have to temper their approach or have to put their foot down. They never missed in terms of their judgment in when to do it. Um, and and their judgment in in the way that they played that situation on day two was just was was really really bad. Basball or no basball, it was really bad, um, and it left them vulnerable to to losing the test match pretty mm. much. I think Stokes after the game sort of inadvertently articulated perfectly what the flaw in his kind of mindset is. So he he was he was asked specifically about that collapse in the first innings. And he said what he's trying to do is try to enable people to be in situations where they have no other thoughts in their heads so that they are able to do what they think is best for them. And there are no no other, they don't start second-guessing themselves at all. Sounds great. But what happens if someone doesn't know what's best for them? Isn't like the entirety, in the entirety of uh, the game's history, we've had coaches and captains intervening when people more qualified than young players intervene and say, actually, you, you do just need to change the way you're going about things a little bit. So I thought it was interesting during this test match that Duckett, a guy who's in his late 20s, he's got 20 or so first class hundreds. He's done really well in, in, in different conditions recently. He, he has an excellent test match. He's played. So he's been superb, actually. Yeah, he's been I've brilliant. Been, I've been pleasantly surprised at how uh, how good he has been. And then, um, and then sorry, then Stokes, Stokes and uh, I think Bairstow look like they're pretty set in terms of how they want to go about things. Same same with Root, but maybe some of the younger players in Crawley, Pope, and Brooke, who who have all at some at various points of the series got runs, actually might not have the same clarity as some of the older guys. And I wonder if actually. There needs to be there needs to be a little bit more intervention from the guys at the top. Well, I mean, I think I think it's I think it makes perfect sense for um, the team to have you know to have a commonality in the way that they they want to encourage people to to play and express themselves, whatever whatever that means. But I think that's absolutely fine. But I think an overarching um, strategy ought to be. You know what? If we if we get these get these guys with all the men back on the on boundary and we can tick along at four or five and over without having to without having to slog it up in the air, then let's do that. Wait for them to bring the field in, and then we'll and then we'll smash them again. You know, that, I mean that's not that's not telling people 
that's not taking away people's sort of unalienable right to uh, to hit sixes that's just playing cricket smart um and i think and like i said i think they did that throughout the course of uh, of, of last summer which was fantastic um barring the, the one game at lords um and and i see no reason as to why that shouldn't be the case um again this year against a, you know against a really dangerous opposition i mean it's the other thing that you have to take into account is that australia are the best team in the world um and that ends the conversation so you kind of you're unlikely to be able to push them around or, or for want of a better phrase take the piss out of them in the way that you might be other teams so sometimes you have to push and pull a little mm. a little bit and i still don't see that as sort of like trampling on anybody's individual um individual expression it's just playing the game you know mm. um i'm afraid i've got to ask you about the johnny besto alex carey stumping um you've you've done a tweet that's that's gone viral this morning that was sort of in relation to it um you you basically think it was fine yeah i, I mean i was listening to it on the radio and um and a, it was a, ali mitchell actually she she swapped over at jonathan Aggie was on was on lead commentary when it happened and aggers sort of got all flustered and didn't quite know what to say about it and ali mitchell came on and i was trying to because nobody had really described what had happened apart from oh no oh this is oh dear. um and ali mitchell said well alex carey took the ball and immediately threw the stumps down and i thought okay well that's that sounds that sounds like it's out to me so i got on the phone to call my old man who i knew he'd be watching i said just tell me what happened just just walk me through it and he walked me through it and I said, so that's out then, isn't it? And he said, yeah. <laughs> and that was pretty much it. That was the conversation. Um, and then when I eventually got to Taunton, I was driving down there for a blast game and, and watched it, saw it on the, the you know, a clip on socials on two different angles. And I'm just thinking to myself, that's just out. I, I, in all the time that I played, right? And it was instinctive, instinctive thing to do. If I was going to wander up, up the crease to go and do some gardening or whatever it might be, I would I would instinctively turn around to to the keeper or who or if I'd knocked it to cover or whatever I'd make sure I got eye contact nodded is it okay and and then move right it was just something that I always did I never even thought about it because in the same way that I was taught <clears throat> as a kid when you're taking a catch don't put the ball on the floor uh-huh <laughs> I was taught to make sure that the ball was dead or that the fielders were happy for you to leave your ground before you left your ground um, and so for me, it's just as, as plain as day out and pretty much to all of the other professional cricketers that I have spoken to, they all say exactly the same thing. What was he doing? Where was he going? Why didn't he make sure that he knew where the ball was and what was going on before he left? Um, and of course, now we've got an international incident. We've got, we've got Johnny Farquhar or whatever his name is getting banned from, from the MCC. We've got, you know, people saying they're not going to have a beer with each other after the game and, and, and what's worse people being people who who have definitely done worse things being holier than thou on social media saying how awful the whole thing is and how you'd never have done anything like it nonsense ignoring twitter what did you make of the reaction of stokes and mccullum because they could very easily have just said what you said and just said it was out and sorry it worth clarifying they both said it was out but stokes and mccullum both said that they would have um, revoked the appeal had had the shoe been on the other foot. Well, I mean, I don't think they can say that either of them because, well, because they, were, they, weren't they weren't in that position. They weren't because they weren't in that situation. Mm. 
Um, they cannot. They cannot possibly know how they would have reacted in that situation. They can't. You can say that everyone can say that I would have. I'd, I'd go back into the burning building to save, you know, to save the bloke next door. You can say that, but whether you would actually do it, you don't know. Mm. Unless you, you, unless you are actually in that situation, you have no idea what you would have done in, in that situation. And you know, C Cummins's interview at the end of it was more interesting for me because he, because he said, and I think he was being completely genuine. He said, "We'd watched him do it a couple of times before." Alex threw the stumps down. We all thought that it was absolutely, absolutely kosher and fine, and we didn't give it. You know, we we had, didn't think for a second that there was any reason um, to recount recount the appeal you know it, it is not up to it's not up to any players on the field like the baroness is one of my favorite ones is the ian bell india thing at trent bridge it is not up to the player to call time on t it's not up to the player to say to decide when it is over it is not up to the player to decide when the ball is dead you make sure you make sure your responsibility that the ball is not live before you go wandering out of your crease it's pretty damn simple hmm. Um, Nick asks, where do we go from here with the short pitch stuff? If it becomes a legit tactic for 60 out of 70 overs, people are going to switch off. It's mostly pretty dull. We lose 90% of the shots, but the bowlers are showing it's sustainable for longer than we expected and it gets wicked. So I think it's a great question. I think there were quite a few things going on here. You, you didn't have a frontline spinner for the majority of the game over both sides. Uh, the pitch was unusually slow, but I guess from a, almost worrying from a tactical perspective i think what both teams did is they went all in on the tactic in a way that you've not really seen before so england literally didn't bowl a full ball for three hours on day four um both teams had sometimes teams go to the short ball and you've got two men back deep and that's kind of it but this is the entire field everybody's on the leg side exactly yeah. exactly what, what did you make of it it's, and, it's and leg theory isn't it by any other name um it's 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 you know the, the laws of the game were changed for after the body line series the laws of the game were also changed um when the west indies were, were the dominant force in world cricket in order to to stop them from you know from from intimidating batters by bowling too many deliveries at, you know at, at people's heads and having said that you know and again I don't, I don't know the west indies took real umbrage to that because they felt that they were being unfairly persecuted and I don't ever remember seeing Malcolm Marshall and, and Joel and, and Mikey bowl into to those types of fields. They would always have three slips, a gully, short leg, one man back, you know, or maybe two men back. Um, and the whole game was changed because of that. And now everyone's kind of going, well, is, is quite happy to have everybody on the leg side, no attempt to bowl the ball at stumps whatsoever. And I really don't like it. I know that the worst thing about it is that it's very successful and you can understand why, because you know, in order to in order to score any runs, you've got to take this risk on with all of these with all the fielders over there. Um, you know, and if the boundary's big enough or whatever, then you, you know it's a really big risk to try and to take that on all the time to score. So it's going to be successful. It's going to work for me. It is the biggest advertisement for um, for for quality spin bowling that I've ever seen because, <laughs> because it's just so dull. Yeah. Um, and uh, so I, you know. <sighs> I, I don't know. I, I don't because what about intimidatory bowling? I mean, that seems to have disappeared. I remember Alex Tudor once. Alex Tudor once getting warned by I think it might have been umpire Alan Jones. We're playing on a quick bouncy one at, at Northampton, and Alex Tudor is bowling Rob Bailey, former England batter. I think he was batting at three for Northampton at the time, and Tudor is just bowling this 
wicked spell where the ball is just whistling past his neck, you know, back of a length, bounce, all that kind of stuff. And after about two or three overs of this, and you know, of, of Chu's really sort of hurrying him up and all the rest of it, well, not two or three, it wasn't even that long. It was probably about an hour and a half. I think I was captain. And, uh, and, and, the, and the umpire sort of gave choose a warning about intimidatory bowling. And I blew my stack. You know, it was kind of like we had, we had slips, we had gullies. It was perfectly legitimate, quick bowler bowling to top order batter. But we've had, a, we've had through the course of the test match, for both teams, bowling at 9, 10 and Jack, with everybody on the leg side bowling at their heads the whole time. What the hell's that? I mean, I think part of it was how lenient the umpiring was at the start yeah. of the ploy. I think they were really, really slow to call... Uh, not only overhead wides, but also calling one for the over when it's above shoulder head shoulder, shoulder height. I think they were they got slightly better as the test progressed, but I do think they could have they could have been harsh on that. I mean, you, you talk about how you know potentially being called for um, the bowling being too intimidating. You know, the England bouncers weren't at ninety miles per hour; they were between no. seventy-seven and uh, eighty-one, with the exception of Josh Tung. Um, final question, Butch: Changes for Headingley. Um, Jimmy didn't have a great test. Uh, he didn't bowl badly again, uh, but is a Mark Wood is in the squad, so you'd think he's fit. If Wood's fit and with how well Tongue bowled, you, yeah. how how do you, how do you get Wood in the side? Um, well, I, I think one of one of Jimmy or or Stuart has to miss out. Probably Jimmy. Um, keeper up. He's just not not looked himself. Um, and obviously the squad hasn't changed, has it? So you've still got you've still got Mo there. Um, should they want a, a spinner? Um, I, I would imagine, you know, some of the head and knee pitches have turned quite a bit. Um, that they would want to have a specialist spinner inside. Mm. Um, you know, obviously with the squad being what it is, it's, there's no place for, for for somebody on the outside of that. Um, Dawson or, or Ray Allen, who spent most of the game on the field. It, Ollie Pope's shoulder, is that an issue? I mean, he didn't feel, did he, for, throughout most of the test match? Um, and so Dan Lawrence is the sort of the spare batter. Um, you know, is there a case for <clears throat> is there a case for shifting shifting things around a little bit if Popey can't make it, um, and, and perhaps having Ben go up to number three? I mean, I don't know. Honestly, I don't know. I think what one of the things is that that, that because of the calls that they've made from the start of the, the Test match series, it is unlikely to wildly differ. At some point, one of the one of the frontline bowlers was going to have to be rested because. Because of the back-to-back tests, I mean, it was brute, it's going to be brutal on both sets of bowling attacks that, that that last test match. Just given how many short balls they all bowled, so I would expect at least one change in both sides in terms of the seamers. Um, Australia, I think, would be keen to get their spin bowler in Murphy in in instead of Nathan Lyon. I mean, that's a huge blow for them not to have him, but I think for them they would much rather have that variety. Um, and for us, if I guess if most fit, then I think he I think he comes back and plays um, again. A huge risk because. With injuries of that nature, they can come back again if he has to do a lot of work. So uh, England don't have many options, really. But I think Wood will play. Um, and I think, um, you know, Jimmy might be the one to sit out. Mm. Well, just a three-day gap between test matches. Chasey Seinbutch, catch you soon. No problem. For this episode, Kia's movement that inspires moment, Kia is giving you the chance to watch the highly anticipated Ashes match against Australia at the Kia Oval on July the 30th. Not only will you be able to attend day four of the test, 
you can also watch it from the luxury of the Kia box for a chance to win a pair of tickets. All you need to do is enter by heading to the link in the description. Mel, first off, have you recovered? No, I haven't recovered. I'm a blithering mess. And I, just hearing you talk about the final test here at the over, oh, over, see, I can't even, I can't, can't spake. Um, I, I don't know how I'm going to get to the oval. This series so far has, has just been emotionally, physically, spiritually exhausting on every level. God knows how the players do it. I'm just watching it's, and it's done me in. Um, yeah, it, it was incredible. Very different uh, of course, to Edgebaston, I feel like there was this, there was a lovely warm glow after Edgebaston where it was all, gosh, that was great cricket and it was so close and, and, you know, everyone was kind of happy. And now, now the fuse has been lit and it, it, it has exploded uh, after Lords. And, Wow, I, I, it's, it, I was thinking about it. You know, we've just covered some incredible series. I think about that Border Gavaskar series in Australia when India won probably the second time, which I, I thought, God, that's, you know, it was one of the greatest series, if not the greatest series I've ever covered. But there really is something about Ashes that just produces something utterly ridiculous and that is where we are now this is crazy this series edge baston was exhausting in quite a rational way <laughs> just when mm. england batting i remember we were talking about it that because england bats so quickly you literally do just pack in a day and a half in a day or even mm. two days in a day maybe whereas this one was there was just so much going on on that on that final day and it's kind of quite hard to get your head around and you, you say there's something different about ashes cricket that final day i think for the first time in the series felt you know what, this has got the needle of the, the great series have. You know, you think back to 2005, the cricket was great, but one of the first things an English fan will remember is Ricky Ponting walking off the field, giving it all that to, to the, the England dressing room. And we'll get into the rights and wrongs of everything from the player behaviour to the fans' behaviour. Um, but from an overall spectacle, I think it has elevated a notch. A notch? Are you Several kidding? notches. <laughs> it's elevated, all right. Yeah, and... Yeah, it has, and I mean, when you've got when you've got a good old moral debate, you know, the moral ashes running alongside the actual ashes, and who's who's one up in all of that, then that absolutely adds another dimension to it. And for for me, I, when you talk about everything that happened, it was, but I thought back, it was genuinely must have been five million years ago that Johnny Bairstow carried off. That, that the protester. But I was looking back, oh, yeah, Steve Smith scored a century, didn't he? Like, all these things seem to have all been forgotten in what happened. But what it has done as well, well, it, it did It did in the final day. It's going to be fascinating for me to see how that might play out of the rest of the series is it, it was released Ben Stokes' beast mode mm. in unbelievable ways. It was genuinely... The, the stumping of Johnny Bairstow released the Kraken and it was glorious to watch. Uh, it didn't, of course, quite become the miracle of Lords as it was the miracle of Headingley, but it, it only enhances, I think, the legend uh, that is Ben Stokes. I don't know any other player like him who can do things like that. Who can, it almost it seems like bend the will of the elements and, and everything focuses on him and what he can do. It, it, it was quite incredible to watch, really. can't believe I've been lucky enough to be there for a number of 
these amazing moments when he does this under the most intense pressure as well. So uh, all of that now, everything that happened on the last day of an incredibly eventful test will undoubtedly be the narrative going forwards. But is the Kraken released and is that enough to get England back into this series very quickly? Who knows? Um, but just on on Stokes, his innings, Ben, I, I said it on the Daily Pod, but there was something quite special about it being uh, at the setting of one of his 2019 miracles in a similar scenario to the other 2019 miracle, a more extreme example. Mm. And this was a combination of the two and had he pulled it off, it would have been the one that topped them all, I think. Um why do you think Stokes is capable of those innings more often than anyone else? Yeah, well, it's it's so odd, isn't it? Because actually, the before this game, I reckon one of the great frustrations, or the, like the main great frustration of of, of Baz Ball has been that Stokes has been the one kind of unable to to thrive under it as a as a cricketer, I guess. Um, as much as you know, he's he's driven it as a captain, um, and yet you kind of still got the sense that like. It was fine for him to go and chuck it away if England were, you know, 304 or whatever, uh, as long as he could still do these things. And we we had signs that that, were, that was the case. You know, we had the, the South Africa 100 last year after they lost that one game that summer. That was, just, obviously, it was nowhere near as ridiculous as this. But that was Stokes being like, oh, okay, this now there's now a bit more importance to what I do, so I'm going to do it properly. And maybe that's just how he needs to do it in terms of, conserving his own not not his not his physical fitness but his, his, his mental energy basically if like for, like obviously it would be great if Stokes played like that all the time but like that's, that's sure, asking a lot in Venice exactly that's surely <laughs> impossible and if and if and absolutely fine for Stokes to 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 do that um uh like at the points when England most need it, I think England would would quite happily take that um I guess also look Stokes and and you're, you're seeing this you know through all everything that England are doing and they still deserve lots of credit for everything that's happened even though they're you know they're turning down a national series so we'll get more onto that but what a lot of that highlights is that stokes is just he's super smart basically mm. uh and i mean smart maybe in some kind of unconventional ways but like he's he's really instinctively or you know calculatedly or however managed to find ways to you know motivate cricketers and get the best out of cricketers who previously were you know severely underperforming or like a, a huge low ebb that's obviously that's that is a, a brilliant thing he has done and there was huge cricketing intelligence in that and we've seen him have cricket intelligence at, at so many points in his England captaincy and through his England career and I think if you're contrasting it to that first innings when England I think England the stick was that they got was fair enough for that uh for that you know how they collapsed in that innings and obviously it was it was bad I'm not saying it wasn't bad equally there are two things which is one was that I think at the time people didn't quite acknowledge how difficult a problem that was to solve like what do you do when a team bowls loads of bounces at you and puts loads of men out on the hook uh, and has like a feel completely set for that what what is the right way to approach that because we saw in Australia's innings uh what they did uh, they they did what, what England fans kind of wanted England to do and lost 128 for eight or whatever it was uh, going at like two and over. So clearly you can't you you it's, it's also not valid, especially with how England play. But in general, to just ride it out, that wouldn't have worked. So it was a, pr- a pretty tricky challenge to figure out how you do play that short ball. And Ben Stokes did it absolutely brilliantly. What, what, what... I thought Ben Duckett did as well. I, I yeah. thought their their batting on that final morning, that first hour was fantastic mm. i thought it was really really good the way that they they found ways to negotiate that that bowling safely while still scoring 
Um, and they did play lots of hook shots, a lot of controlled hook shots. Uh, and and I, I just, I don't know, I thought that was really impressive. And, and managing it with the conditions as well, right? What, what yeah. was the stat about him scoring from different ends, Stokes? Uh, and yeah, so basically when he went from, off. Yes, yeah, yeah. so from when Besto was out, and we'll get to the Besto dismissal, don't worry. Um, <laughs> he struck at well over 100 from bat- batting from the pavilion end. Mm. So, ba- so the leg side boundary for him was slightly shorter, but crucially downhill and downwind. Yeah. yeah. And he was striking it well below 50 from the nursery end. And that that's a brilliant piece of cricketing smartness. And I guess... But also for Cummins as well, it must mm. be said. So there was a moment um, when Stokes hits Stark for two sixes after lunch and England is still scoring really quickly. You have a, the, the leadership group come together and have a chat and quite a long chat, noticeably long to have that many people involved um, when there's not a drinks break or whatever. And they, uh, Cummins was asked after the game, what did you guys talk about? And they basically said, let's make scoring to that side of the ground as hard as possible, no Mm. matter what end Stokes is at. And it did really work for Mm. 45 or so minutes before Stokes got out. The run's going really, really dried up. And I know the chat is from our point of view all about England and Stokes at the moment. But again, Australia just get their head down and do the basics better than any other cricket team in the world at the moment. And they they kept their cool, I thought, Mel. I thought it was really impressive again from Pat Cummins across the test match. Yeah, and because, you know, there's no denying that the the ghosts of Headingley, well, they they had the living ghost. (laughs) It's not easy, it's still very much there, but that... The, the memories of that, they, they're, they're most, I think all of them would say, their most heartbreaking loss uh, in Test cricket that they would have experienced uh, in that match. And it was all the little fine margins and, and tiny moments that uh, on that last day at Headingley that they just didn't execute. It was almost like you just have to execute one play, one play and it's done. Uh, and when when Smith dropped the catch, mm. it was like, oh gosh, it's it's Marcus Harris in 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 the form of Smith, and he doesn't normally drop that. It was like Nathan Lyon missing the run out at Headingley. It shows you just what pressure does to even the absolute very best uh, players. They do things that they don't normally do, but it, there was a a little bit more calm I, at one point. I remember yelling out, oh, my God, how many reviews do Australia have? Because I was having flashbacks. To, yeah, they had all three. They had all yeah. three. Um, <laughs> I, I was going back to, you know, flashbacks to again to Headingley. So there was no getting away from memories of that. But they did manage to keep their call. They knew, again, it was just going to be the execution of one play and then it was going to be over. And and that there was, there was a measuredness that wasn't there at Headingley and maybe that, measured thinking wouldn't have been there if they hadn't been through Headingley because they knew what had happened last time and what they did wrong. And they did slow that down and they did stop him from scoring so frequently there. So, yeah, maybe this, you know, you you need to give some credit to what happened at Headingley and what they learned from that loss in how they they ended up being able to affect a win. Mm. Yeah, but I I think it's also just huge credit to, to Cummins as well. I think that the other, the other big difference headingly one is that they've been through it. The other is that the well that both leadership has changed in terms of captain and coach. And I think that Langer and Payne were both like well matched and actually like I think they were both quite hotheads basically. Like especially in those kind of situations, and that was noticeable 
in both tests so far that that's not been the case. And and, and actually, it's it, I've said the stat on the pod before, but I think it is quite illustrative is that going back to 2016, before this series, Australia hadn't won a single test by fewer than 100 runs or with fewer than six wickets in hand, I think it is. Um, and that's... Uh, uh, they won two close tests exactly in yeah. in a row, and that and that was that was the big thing that was stopping them from you know from winning away series. Also, mean they were getting beat at home sometimes, despite the fact they were demolishing teams. Sometimes the games, the close games, they weren't winning, and now they've done two in a row. Uh, and presumably, given the way this series has gone, the games are only going to get closer and closer. Uh, and uh, Australia now also have just that reassurance they have done it in those in those situations. You know, half an hour from the end of both games, right? England were pretty much favourites would that be fair to say I never thought England no. were favourites yesterday okay uh, I know that there's still I, a lot I'm, of runs to I, get. I, I know that Winvis was saying that England were favourites but I, I I think as you saw from England's tail I was like they, they're not going to get 20 between them or they're doing well to get 20 between them mm-hmm. um, so I, I, at no point did I think England were favourites yesterday um, got to talk about it the the biggest moment yesterday was that Bairstow Carey stumping um, we've had loads of really nuanced emails on this um and unfortunately we can't we can't really uh read all of them out but the gist of it the gist of the emails is essentially like questioning when does a ball become dead um pointing out kind of as stokes did that it's slightly different at the end of an over to someone just standing outside of their crease um it's sorry it's really different right can i just uh that the okay I, I I mean, I... It, That's what Stokes said. And by the way, Stokes said it's out. Yes. But he did say it is different if it's the end of an over rather than balls one to five. Yeah, I think so. It's, uh, I, it is it is out. I think it would also have been reasonable, although maybe slightly, like, I think there's more justification for the decision the umpire's made than doing it not out. But the umpires could have concluded the ball was dead. So you think if the ball had been called dead, it wouldn't have been the wrong decision? Uh, I think, yeah, I, th- I think both decisions would have been that would have been reasonable i think that the ball finally sat on the keeper's hands the umpires have leeway in doing that and it would be reasonable to say if a player has left the ball and it is in the keeper's hands that means it's uh that means it's finally settled especially you know uh so but but yeah but the decision itself i don't think i don't have an issue with the other thing that's different as well to some of the other situations that people are sort of raising in comparison say there's a folk stumping of Balburn that's been going around a lot or Pope running out to Grand Tom is that the reason why Best was run out in, the case, in this case is because he thinks the ball is dead. That's different to someone who doesn't know where the ball is, like wondering if they can take a run or to a guy overbalancing when he's sort of like still in his crease. Those things, are, those are, they're just different. They're just, they're not analogous. You, you might think one is right and one is wrong and that's fine. But then, and I also think Kerry hasn't, Kerry isn't throwing the ball in the hope that Bairstow thinks it's dead as well. That would be sort of pretty sharp practice. He's throwing it because he thinks Bairstow might be out of his ground. He could not have thrown the ball quicker. Yes. That, that. In the same way that when a batter is stumped off a spinner, the keeper well, whips off the bails point. as you, soon as possible. Yeah, you, you, can't have a different, you can't have a different law for spinners and, and pace bowlers. Mm. So, it, so it can't be different. And, and you probably wouldn't, you wouldn't have as much sympathy for a, a batter if if it had happened to a spin to spin bowling the keeper was up. Right, I, I don't think that would have been nearly as controversial because we're so used to seeing that kind of thing. And you, you can't. I don't. I, I don't see how you can have a different law, uh, even if it is. I, I get the uh, the thing about the end of the over, but 
But with, with the ball settling in the keeper's hands, you you can't differentiate. I think between spin and pace. Mm. I look, no, no one, even Ben Stokes, no, no one's actually disputing that it's out, right? Yeah. No, I'm, no I'm one's. Not, actually I've not seen anyone that, right? really say that. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, there's there's some irony, and that this is it. Uh, and I get it. It's partly you know because it's ashes, because emotions are high and people care, which is a great thing. But it it is a little ironic that I find people care so much about the letter of the law um, in one way when Mitch Stark grasses a catch and then the next day the same people are not so worried about the letter of the law, more worried about the spirit of cricket and it just suddenly flips because mm. – a lot of it depends on who you're supporting. And that yeah. that's the passion of fans and how much people care about that. Sports but it, fans are just hypocrites, <laughs> right? <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, yeah. I, I, yeah, I mean, I, I basically think it was, they were both, uh, the, the decisions in both with the Stark non-catch and the Bearstow stumping were both correct. Like the laws, especially, I think, probably more so for the Stark one, are quite clear. Um and yeah, I, I mean, it, it was interesting how much it riled people up. And I, and, and I think in defence of the umpires and in defence of Australia, Atherton and Strauss, two former England captains, straight away just said it was Dozy, didn't contest it. And I guess it is it is Dozy from Bairstow to assume the ball is dead that quickly. Mm -hmm. That is a mistake. Yeah. And he has been punished for that mistake. Mm. I think the thing that's perfect about this is there's so many things that are kind of all true and people on either side aren't acknowledging the things on the other side that are true. Yeah. It is Dozer and Bairstow. Yes. Oh. Bairstow has run out because he thinks the ball is dead. Yes. Kerry has not taken that knowledge into effect when he tried to run him out. Yes. Uh, is there is Therefore, there is a slight quibble around if you want to talk about... Like, so, okay. Taking a different comparison where the other team chose to withdraw the appeal, the bell Dhoni run out in 2011... I think in that case, there was even less reason for India to withdraw the appeal than in this case, because that ball just definitely wasn't dead because it hadn't gone to the boundary. In this case, there is an argument that I think, I think Bester was more justified thinking the ball was dead, even mm. though the umpire still made the right decision, I guess. Um, and people pe people weren't saying it was a disgrace for India to withdraw that appeal, I don't think. Um, we got a question from Louis who asked, what would you all advise your captains to do in that situation? I think Mel... Pretty ah. clear. Pretty clear that you'd you'd be do what Australia did. I would I would be the same. How do you think it ben, would go down in in a club game? It's completely different in a club game because there are things you can't check in a club game. Mm -hmm. So you can't check if the so for example that whether whether the umpire has called over or not. That is something that's impossible to check in a club game. But the umpires um, would know though if they. But I think over. I mean on my, on my own team, our, our wicketkeeper tries that all the time, mm -hmm. all the time. I've actually got a wicket like that before. So I'm not complaining. Okay. Um, would you? Would you? Uh, I, I I could see that sort of dismissal causing a bit of. I mean, well, it's called oh, yeah, it's, yeah. it's called unwritten test. <laughs> yeah. So uh, I I could see someone, and I, I guess this is the thing. In, similar actually to Robinson's sledging of Kawaja, and people make the point that well, he's going to have to back up with wickets now. Kerry's had a good se series with with the gloves. I think Kerry's been brilliant. Uh, he's been brilliant with the gloves. Been yeah. brilliant with the bat. Um, but he's he's going to have to maintain that because. Uh, there was a, I think there was a certain element of sheepishness you could see from him in particular in the way that, you know, Broad, Broad I think, felt a little bit like he was maybe getting slightly under his skin. Kerry was like, you know, because Broad was asking, right, is the ball dead or not? Which Broad was obviously being, you know, facetious, annoying and asking. 
also Kerry kind of has to answer that question now, right? Like, uh, and Kerry wasn't doing that. He didn't really have the responses there. He's, he, he's if, if Kerry now doesn't have a, continue to have a brilliant series, then people will look back on this, I suppose, similar to Robinson, I think. Do you think? I, I think people are going to bring this up for years in the same way people bring up Broad not walking for years. I don't think how Carey does for the rest of the series really no, no. affects that. But of course it, it won't. But people, yeah, yeah, exactly. I, can I, I just say, like, just so that people know that we do read the emails as well, and I, I, I know we, we don't have time to go through them, but I, I did think there was a really interesting one that you forwarded me from James Tapper just talking about... Uh, how difficult or his frustration with the the dead ball rule and knowing and trying to teach kids when the ball's live and mm. when it's dead. So uh, you've made me think a lot about things, James Tapper, out there. <laughs> I'm going to actually take your email to Fraser Stewart at the uh, at the MCC and ask him about that because like I do whenever there's something I'm not sure about and I need to understand why the law is why it is so mm. that's um yeah because it, it is it's it, it, it's a vague enough thing in that um yeah there's some vagueness around it right it, it, or not vagueness around the actual law but but when something isn't marked by a line mm. or it's not the stumps or whatever it is there's it's a it's an interpretation that both teams have to consider the ball dead and the well, the umpire satisfied both teams think mm. thinks the ball is dead that that's enough vagueness that makes it more difficult mm. i think so yeah i'm i'm pretty defensive of the laws <laughs> in most cases and 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 in, and in this ben one thinks as well. the laws are the greatest piece of writing ever well no I, I, I definitely think there are certain things you can put on but i think my my main frustration is when people criticize the laws because something isn't sort of like there are always going to be edge cases and borderline cases with anything. There wouldn't be a way to make the laws, I think, to, to or, or you could make the laws to have the Steve Smith catch be definitely out or definitely not out, say, in the in the first innings. But um, there wouldn't be a way to make the laws so that every single catch was uncontroversial. That's just impossible. Mm. And probably, I mean, maybe you could say that the ball is only dead, like, or the, the umpires have to say the ball is dead. And until that point, you know, everything is fair. Maybe that, that is something that could be added, I suppose. Hey, calm down, um, calm down. I just want you to know I'm not having a go at no, the no, laws no, either. No, 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 I have many of these discussions with Fraser and they, they do change them when incidents come up that that, that they feel like, okay, there's some ambiguity mm. there. Because there, there are some things. And, the, you know, the, the, the catching thing about that's more of a, uh, like those laws are almost designed for, for the there being no grass, mm. like, you know, because there's not one line there. There, yeah. there. there are things that by their nature are ambiguous because they just are. Uh, and But then what happens with this, of course, is is that you have that added completely uh, yeah, ambiguous and open to interpretation so-called spirit of cricket, which I know a lot of us, a lot of people think is, is nonsense. A lot of people feel very strongly about it. But at least the laws... Mm are there and and they are the laws. So mm. unlike the spirit of cricket, which means whatever you want it to mean, basically. I just, whilst we're talking about Carey, a piece of absolute brilliance on the final day from him uh, for the the wicket of Ben Duckett. Uh, I don't know if people would have seen this, but replays basically showed that he'd moved his, his starting position considerably for that ball. So it ends up going, he's basically standing where he would be standing if it was a right-handed batter. And the ball goes directly to him and he probably doesn't get the the ball 
uh, had he been standing in his conventional spot. So I didn't. Re- so it was for the ball itself. It yeah, was like, it was only that ball. Wow, and that Sky, is Sky looked back was, yeah. at like what was potentially said between Hazelwood and Kerry. Absolutely nothing. So maybe it was a plan they they concocted before the over that he does that for the fourth ball or whatever. But yeah, there wasn't any communication between maybe like Kerry a bit and anyone else. B- baseball s catching signals. Like yeah. A, <laughs> um, we got an email in from another James. Uh, he says. Um, I enjoyed having my email read out so much last week that I decided to give it another shot. I'm currently training for an ultra marathon, so that was just the boost I needed on my run. If we move past the mostly bizarre opinions on the Bearstow stumpings, the real question for me is, does the pod think that England now actually have a greater chance of winning the series than before this match? I know this sounds odd, but this is my thinking. Number one, there will be no Nathan Lyon, who has a strange hold on English batters for over a decade. Two, there'll be an even more pissed off Bairstow with a point to prove. Three, it will possibly be a fresh England attack. I reckon we could see Moeen and Wood come in for Anderson and Robinson versus a tired Australian attack. They'll be playing their fourth game in a month. And four, we will see the loudest crowds England has seen for a while. And five, Ben Stokes. That man does not know when he is beaten. Would love to hear the pod's thoughts on any of the above points. This Australia side is definitely decent, but I don't think it's quite as good as the statistics and pundits would have you believe. For me, 3-2 is well and truly on. Mel, what do you reckon? So, so were you in the press conference yesterday with us? Yeah. Do you, when when I asked Ben Stokes if this um, if this felt different to edge bastard losing this match or if it was the same and he gave the most extraordinary answer that's when he said we're in the perfect position and i was like yeah yeah we've, we've got them right where we want them it was sort of like it was amazing and of course he's going to say that we can mm. win actually i've really hurt myself i did that really went really hard. went for it wow um it it, it was extraordinary when he was saying we were in the perfect position for the way we play, and I I, I know it. I know what he's saying, um, and he's got to say that as well because he's not going to also go out there and say, yeah, no, we're probably we might win one, mm. maybe two. If we're lucky, we can draw the series. So of course he's he's going to to say that, um, and, and I guess that's what I reference earlier that uh, have they release the Kraken in and is is that going to make a difference it may well the manner of this loss without it being so nicey nicey really like it was after Edge Baston um this might really focus England you know they're not going to be going off playing golf at St Andrews in between these tests it's, it's a quick turnaround and they're straight into it and I think they're going to be smarting in ways that they weren't smarting after Edge Baston, mm. uh, and he made the point you know, that they they have won th- series three nil before, so you know they they have a precedent if they look at it this way. Uh, I, I mean, I've given up predicting anything. It, it's hard. Australia have such a good bowling attack; they are a really good side. Now, it hasn't been flawless their performance, uh, but. Again, we'll probably have to go and say, "Gosh, look what 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 are the conditions like?" Australia did, you'd have to say, probably have the worst of the conditions mm. for the two sides. It really felt like every time they came out to to bat, the clouds came over, and every time they came out to bowl, 
the sun broke through. Mm. So there, there is something in that. They did, they've managed to find their way through that. Without Nathan Lyon, he is a big loss for sure. I, I do think they have a lot in that bowling attack though uh, with possibly others to come in if there are tired bodies that can still take 20 wickets, mm. if, especially if they've got a, a de- decent off-spin bowler to, to hold up an end. But I, I don't think it's outside the realms of possi- possibility that they could come back and, and win this 3-2. It, it's not. It's going to be really hard. But, yeah, the focus is going to be really interesting for me for England if this if this really sharpens it, and I think it will. Mm. I think I basically, I, I think it, in this now I would make England favourites for this three match series they're about to play if that makes sense <laughs> but I would expect them to probably take a 2-1 I think like mm. I think they're not 3-0 best in Australia even without Lyon and even with the miles and legs and even now England you know properly focused or whatever um I think that uh Australia you know at some point there'll be a collapse or a Dixon innings from Smith or Head or something and, and they'll be able to get one of them to get over the line I just really hope that that game is at the oval so that because because at that point if it's 2-2 going into the fifth test then we you know whatever happens there it's basically one of the greatest uh test series of all time it was really when at headingly as good as these first two tests have been it does become a bit of a a damp squib going into the into the last mm. two games unfortunately and i think mel you're absolutely right i think it's important to really stress australia won this test match without their lead spin it's been mm. a, on the field for most of the game uh they they won this test match after being inserted to, to bat in conditions that felt like the first morning at Trent Bridge in 2015, first morning at Edgebaston in 2015, first morning at Headingley in 2019. That that I know the pitch was flat, but it did a lot when the ball when when the conditions were overcast and the ball was new, and it was both of those in that first morning. And England weren't really on it. And I feel like if you look at differences between the two sides, Australia don't let England go through moments like that. They're not really that passive when there is an opportunity to really attack with the ball, I think. Obviously, with the bat, England, uh, England do their own thing. But, you know, if you compare the two sides in that that new ball spell in the second innings, that that's what wins Australia game, right? England are 48-4, chasing 371. It's ridiculous that England came within 43 runs of winning when only two guys get to 20, right? Um, I guess that is the big, one of the big, big differences between the sides. Yeah. Can I ask Mel a question, actually? How like keen will Australia be to make changes because as much as as much as I agree that Nisa say could come in and do a pretty good job uh like I get the feeling that Australia if they think those guys can just about get through a game they would pick them whereas it would be almost more likely I think as as they did with Wood in this test they sort of basically saying like I think Wood might be fine to get through it but let's give them one more week whereas I feel like Australia they have their first choice team and they would only go away from that if they absolutely had to and I wonder if that could hurt them when they actually give someone one game too many, if that makes sense. I, I think they would go with their f- first choice, absolutely. If they're, if they're all fit and they're all okay, then, yeah, I, I, I can't imagine them going away from that. They were quite surprised by how uh, much England went after Scott Boland at, at Edgebaston. They were, I don't think they were expecting that. In fact, I know they, were, they weren't really expecting it. Uh, so, you know, after having not picked Stark, going back to the so-called big three that have dominated and that Boland had pushed himself into by virtue of his wicket-taking ability um, in the tests he's had. Uh, I think that's a more comfortable bowling attack for Australia, having those three in there. So, 
I mean, just it depends how they pull up. We saw a lot of bowlers bowling a lot of over short, but then again, because of the way England play, they didn't take advantage. That for me was a really key part of the match, really, when line went off and all of a sudden you had four fast bowlers and there was no thought at that point from England that here's a moment where we can actually take advantage. And the whole basball thing, it, it's not about just being aggressive. It's it's about working out, having game awareness mm. and working out when are the moments to press, when are the moments to absorb. I thought that was a moment that England could have actually done some damage but they could have really made inroads into the the fitness and well-being of Australia's fast bowlers and they didn't do that they were too busy expressing themselves mm. um which I you know I get the clarity message and everything else but I, I, you can still I think you can still have clarity while having game awareness and recognizing those moments um and I don't – yeah, that's just one thing. So I think Australia will go with them. I think they've got some good alternatives if they don't, but I, I can't see them not going with those three if they're fit because if they win headingly, it doesn't matter what happens for the other two tests. They can bring in Nisa and, and Boland. They can – Andrew McDonald can come out of retirement and, and bowl a few overs himself. It's a mistake that England have made to, to go the other way around. England have been, have been guilty of planning for test matches that are dead mm. in the past. They're like, oh, make sure Wood's fit for the fifth test. Like, well, if it's 4-0 by then, it doesn't really matter, does it? Mm. Um, Mel, you, you were there for all five days, but the most interesting, I guess, in terms of being at the ground would be day five. Um Cricket is on the front pages, not just for the quality of the cricket, but also for the behaviour of um, some people at the ground. What did you make of the overall atmosphere after the Bairstow stumping, not just in the crowd, but obviously the scenes we saw in the long room afterwards? Uh, well, I've never heard anything like it at Lords, And I spoke to other people who were there, who work, you know, work there. Uh, and have been there for many, many more years than I have, and they've never heard anything like it either. Um, but it, look, it was it was one thing from the crowd. I'm not a massive fan of of booing and abuse normally. I don't care what team it is, whether it's in Australia, whether it's in England. That's just not my thing. But I, you know, people do it, and that's fine. Um, so don't really you know, have that much problem with that. The, the, the stuff in the long room I thought was disgraceful, absolutely disgraceful. And I, I don't see how anybody could excuse that because the you're so close to the players uh, and you think of security normally at at grounds. Although I suppose we started off with a bit of a lapse in security with the, with the protest in the way it started. But I, I just think, I think that's disgraceful to be up that close to players and this is supposedly some you know bastion of decorum and spirit of cricket and everything else and in the end they acted like a bunch of yobs it, it I, I, yeah I thought I thought it was disgraceful and we've seen there's an investigation now it, I understand passions are high but if you're in a really privileged position to be that close to the players uh, and and get all of these 
privilege that privileges that yes you you pay for but in especially in a, in a week where we've we've seen so much talk about elitism in in the english game as well and then you have people who are upholders of, of the elite who want to keep you know fight for the Eaton Harrow game there. So all of these traditions and culture and, yeah, it just was mob mentality. I think you're right to pick out uh, privilege as a word. Like, there's almost a sense that the players are privileged to go through the long room. Like, no, no, no. <laughs> Members of some yeah. private club are privileged to be that close to the players and it's a total abuse of it. You know, you don't get that proximity um, in, in other grounds. Like, I got sent... Uh, I've got a friend who's a playing member at the MCC and he sent me a video of how close he was to Stokes and Broad at lunch. Like they're just walking past. You just don't get that at other grounds. And, and he actually said that as, as a as a, not, as a playing member where he he comes across generally the younger members, he says they're, they're great. But he says there's a noticeable difference in atmosphere when you go to the long room and you go into the pavilion during a test match to other MCC events, which I thought was quite interesting. Um, we've got a question on this more generally, and I think it, think it is worth addressing. Uh, it's from David, who says, really enjoying the podcast this summer. Keep up the good work. I also particularly enjoyed Phil's attempts at sounding impartial on the Surrey comms yesterday. Mm-hmm. thought he just about managed <laughs> it as, 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 as Essex got over the line. Uh, by the way, if you've not seen that Surrey Essex finish, Definitely, definitely go and seek it out on on Twitter. Um, Phil and Joe were on commentary for the final uh, extraordinary moment. Uh, my question is less about the last day of the Lord's Test, but more about the pretty disheartening and enraging comments made by Sir Andrew Strauss about the controversies that happened yesterday. It's a tad ranty. Uh, apologies in advance. I found it remarkable that in the week of the ICEC report, which has specifically stressed classism within the game, we had one of the foremost faces in the English game making comments directly blaming people who don't normally come to laws for the booing and heckling of the Australian players. The MCC has now suspended three of their own members as a result of what has happened. There are videos flying around of many others calling the Aussies cheats and booing them as they came back into the pavilion at lunch. These are people who do come to laws evidenced by the fact that they are MCC members, yet apparently it was the fault of people who had bought tickets for the fifth day and clearly to Strauss had never attended a game in their life. I remember from the 2019 Ashes when there was regular booing for Smith and Warner from both the members' areas and the rest of the ground. It is hardly a new thing. I was just wondering what your thoughts were on the on the reflective blaming. Um, I found it profoundly depressing um, at a time when the game is at least attempting to be aware of, of major ongoing issues. Um Ben, I, th- I think that's that's a fair enough point. And it, it, it's not just, just on Strauss himself, but there was a general vibe that was like, Lord is above it. But actually, Lord is a very strange venue. I thought the timing of the report and a Lord's test mm. was interesting. Uh, it's it's a no, it, I, I, as a, as a, as a non-white guy, I find it impressive for an event in London to be that white, mm. especially cricket, where cricket fans, there's a, you know, a good 30% of people who play cricket in and around London are not white, yet that is not reflected by the demographic at Lords. I thought uh, it was a very, very bad moment for the MCC and Lords, um, given the extra scrutiny on the weirdness that this ground gets to have two tests. I think things like this should come under scrutiny in the next few years. Why does Lords, that has the least representative uh, crowds in England, why do they get more tests than anyone else? I think moments like this, I think will will mean that there'll be more, even more scrutiny on that 
than there was before the test match. Yeah, absolutely echo everything you said and and that that the email has said and uh and and yeah, it's just so so disheartening from from Strauss because you should you should want people to take it like Lord should almost be <laughs> get like giving out cheaper tickets to people in the surrounding areas who maybe might not ordinarily come to to test cricket or who are you know at, at cricket clubs who are real fans who are you know shout out the game by how much it costs and then to turn around and basically say actually we don't really want your kind here essentially uh is 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 yeah it's 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 very very bad and yes a week where loads and loads of things were combined together and i think also that depending on how you know public the public conversation or general perception goes it's not out of the question that lords i guess they've announced uh venues for the next few years but that that becomes more and more of a question is does should laws have two tests yet and also and also there are so many good grounds that just don't get the test sometimes right <laughs> and uh, and we should want to be playing like cricket we should want to be playing cricket spread as far in the country and also because the oval gets test where you have three tests in one city and then like three or four for the whole rest of the country uh and some i think there's a one men's ashes series coming up later in the decade where there's not a single northern test mm. um anyway um all of our Ashes moments of the week are brought to you by our dapper partners, Charles Tirrett, the British menswear brand. Know a thing or two about looking sharp, so whether you're heading off to the cricket, going to the beach, or even working from the office, they have looks for every dress code. For 20% off, shop online at charlestirrett.com and use the promo code WISDON23 at checkout. Um, ben, I'm going to pick out the moment of the test as um, the Pat Cummins ball to Harry Brook. Um, I thought it was really similar to his ball to get rid of Root in 2019 at Old Trafford and had a similarly deflating feel from an English perspective because obviously England fight back to get in the test match. But, you know, this is the guy who's, who, by the way, still averages about 75 of test cricket yeah, yeah. Uh, and Cummins uh, just does what he so often does against England. And, and that is the kind of a Australia a bit, uh, able to be that little bit more penetrative with the ball when, it, when it's helping them compared to England. And then that showed it. Yeah, and I mean, you could you could almost pick any of the balls from that little four test, or well, not the Crawley one, but the other two wickets in mm. that as well. Like the the root ball was also absolutely extraordinary in a test that was you know defined by the bouncer. Really, that was probably the best bouncer in the whole game, I guess. Uh, like root properly contorted, not able to get out of the way, and then that the Pope one was also just like, quite a good ball as well. Yeah, <laughs> and and in terms of just like aesthetically dramatic, that was that that would have been the one I picked out. Albeit he's the the least of the three mm. bats, I guess. But yeah, and and that's that that was what won Australia the game. Not just that passage, but that you know their bowlers were they bowled better than England. That was the the most key thing in the game, and that was the passage where that was most clearly highlighted. Mm. Um, and yeah, they had two champion bowlers doing what champion bowlers do at clutch moments, and uh, yeah, that was that was absolutely vital. Mel, we mentioned it. Um, but we've not specifically addressed it. Nathan Lyon is almost certainly out of the entire series. Well, um, he's definitely definitely out. He's out. Yeah. He's going home. Yeah. Um, a huge blow. Obviously, so much has made going into the game that he that was his hundredth consecutive Test match, the first bowl in the history game to do that. Australia turned to him in every possible setting in the world. Uh, he started the series brilliantly, Ed Baston. Um, just how much of a blow will that be? 
And how much pressure is it that they're going to be on, on young Todd Murphy, who's who's made a brilliant start to his career, but he's, he's inexperienced and he's coming against uh, a lineup who are going to take him on. Yeah, I, you know, talking about this test just shows you how extraordinary it is that we haven't yet even once mentioned the sight of Nathan Lyon hopping down the steps yeah. of the pavilion and going out to bat. It was That was just absolutely incredible crazy um but incredible in the end you know those 15 runs it didn't they weren't the difference but i think they made they, a they, difference by the way they did make a difference in terms yes. of the mentality of the end so Eng- england lose by 43 if it's 28 you're a lot more nervous if stokes falls yep. when there's 55 to win rather than 70 the whole feeling is very very different so i think those yeah. 15 runs did actually make a difference even though that wasn't the winning margin exactly uh Look, he was he was absolutely shattered because the the, the one even though he was approaching five hundred wickets as well, the one hundred consecutive games actually meant a lot more to him because it was unique. Um, and he he said to me, "You'll never do it again." That's the thing; it's that you can only do that once. Um, so that he absolutely shattered, and it is very sad for him personally. Uh, Todd Murphy still very green very talented and is is the bowler who has been seen as the natural successor for um for Nathan Lyon of course played those those tests in India took a seven for in uh in one as well so he just doesn't have the experience that Nathan Lyon does I don't think that's necessarily vital for Australia to win matches just because their all-round bowling attack is so good. You even saw, you know, Travis Head being able to to step in and play a part. Um, so if they've got someone like Todd Murphy who can bowl well, who can chip in with wickets, who can hold up an end probably more importantly to keep the other bowlers fresh, especially if a lot of them are backing up from this one, um, then that is something. But undoubtedly England will look on it as an opportunity to go, right, okay, Let's let's see if we can get on top of this because if they can if they can get on top of him um, early on, then that, that obviously you know may, it might change things a little bit for Australia. It may have an effect on Todd Murphy himself. So you expect, of course, England are going to go after him, uh, and it's going to be a great test of him early in his international career to see how he copes with it. Mm, absolutely, Ben. I almost think. Obviously, Nathan Lyon is a much, much more accomplished test match bowler than Jack Leach, but actually Australia are better um, suited to filling that hole when the league spinner goes down in England. With England, it was kind of total panic stations almost. You know, you're looking around as like, who is there? With Australia, they're literally, I mean, look at this. There's not even a discussion over who that person is. And that actually, there's that backing, I guess, in, in Murphy. He's got recent test experience. He's done well. That obviously, it's going to be a huge challenge for him. But Australia you know, again, comparing them to England, do have that extra strength and depth that England don't quite have in certain positions. Yeah, I guess so. Although I think there's, I think there's probably a bigger, but this is no slight on Lyon, it's just on, on Leach, just how good Lyon is. I think there's mm. a big, probably a bigger gap between Lyon and Murphy than between Leach and Moeen, I think. And they're, they're, they're just different cricketers. England mm. don't have a like for like for Jack Leach. That's true, yeah. Uh, but it's, it's it's more the difference. And then the Moeen was retired, I always guess. Um, but there's also just something in the fact that Australia are still producing enough spin bowls. I know there have been questions over it ever since Warm retired over how people would come through. And Lyon has obviously been brilliant as his successor. 
But like you look at, you know, you look around the English spinning game and who are these specialist spinners and the fact that English clubs are signing not just Todd Murphy, but also Matt Kuderman and Mitchell Swepson as overseas spinners who are Australians. Like you look at that thing like, hang on, Australia is a country that's not at all dominated by spin where quicks rule the roost. How are these guys able to still produce like enough spinners to fill out their teams and we have to go and borrow theirs essentially when it comes to our county season? That will also be, I guess, something of a concern. Uh, for England, just not not just in this series, but kind of going on more generally when we look at the state of spin yeah, in but the, the country. The, well, the Sheffield Shield also takes place over, you know, it, it, they're not playing all of their Sheffield Shield. If they played all of them on, like, at the Gabba in September, mm-hmm. Australia might have a similar problem with that as well, but they're not. So they're playing it around the country. They often play in dry conditions. Yes, often suits uh, often suits quick bowling, but there are pitches in, in Adelaide that, that they're playing on, you know, they might be playing on in, in March that actually is is quite conducive to at least bringing through spinners. Mm. In Australia, is there as much chat on the schedule in domestic cricket as there is here? Because that's obviously everyone's favourite topic. Oh, well, they're constantly sort of uh, reducing and lengthening the big bash, right, and adding on more playoff games. I don't think Australia have it cracked by any means i think right that's the impression i get at least no but i also don't think people care as much so big bashes no it's genuinely so uh, and i think i might have said this on, uh, on this podcast before right? cricket fans in this country or people who watch cricket in this country are cricket fans they're sorry fans they're like what are you what, sorry you're sorry ben I don't have a county team. Oh, well, you just ruined my but, but he, but No, but he doesn't really count because he got into cricket r- relatively late. Right. But so. mo- you ask most people in this country who go to the cricket, maybe not most, but a hmm. pretty decent percentage, and they will have a county, right? And in Australia, it's, it, it just doesn't really work. And no, no one really cares that much about when the Sheffield Shield's on. It's... it's totally irrelevant to a huge proportion of people who t- switch on the TV on Boxing Day and watch the cricket because they've always watched the cricket on Boxing Day mm. in Australia. So there's there, there will be times when, oh, it's like, you know, when they split the Sheffield Shield initially and there was talk about that if Australia are doing really badly international, then people will talk about the schedule a little bit more. Mm. But when Australia is not doing badly and they've just won the world test championship uh then people like most people don't really care Mm. there's not the same thing the big bash is different because it's it's more about the fact there are too many games and and everything it hasn't been ideal it's not ideal to have the season split whatsoever Mm. the one day cup in australia has become just a a pre-summer little tournament that mm. very few people pay any attention to domestically mm. uh, which sounds really harsh but it's, well, it's quite it's, similar to our one here i mean the, the royal london now gets paid at the same time as 100 and it's essentially uh kind of a development competition i, I reckon you get more people going to it to that than you would going to oh, really one day cup games really? well i went to a final so a few years back when um first time i went to a royal royal london london one day cup final at lords Everyone was going nuts because there were only like something like 17,000 people here. And everyone was like lamenting the days when it used to be a full house. I had been to one in Australia and I can't even remember what the sponsor was that year because the sponsor has changed so Mm. many times. At the SCG where at the final, uh, it was free, 
um, to go in, I'm pretty sure, or might have been like five or ten dollars, so mm. two quid, five quid. Uh, there were two thousand were the official figures, and wow. I went up to an official and said, "If there are two thousand people here, you have counted every steward, every cleaner, every person on the yeah. ticket gate, because there ain't there ain't two thousand people yeah. here." So that's. That's the difference, right? That is interesting. That yeah. is interesting. Anyway, uh, that is all we have time for for today's show. We've got another weekly show coming your way on Wednesday that will be rounding up everything else that's happened in the world of cricket over the last week, which there's also been a lot of that, by the way. And then kind of unbelievably, the next test match starts on Thursday. So oh. in three days' time, at the time of recording, we'll be approaching lunch on day one at Headingley. Cheers for your time, Mel. Hope you recover for heading late. Cheers, Ben. Uh, this has been the Wisdom Cricket Weekly Podcast. We'll be back soon. Hi, I'm Kumar Sangakara, and I'm speaking to you from the Kia Oval. Hello to all parents of young cricket fans. If you are 11 to 16 years old, or if you are a parent of an 11 to 16-year-old, then this message is for you. As part of the partnership between Surrey County Cricket Club and Kia, this amazing opportunity has been created to motivate and excite you, cricket's next generation. This is your chance as a young cricketer to play here on the hallowed green of the Kia Oval where I spent some great years playing for Surrey in the sport that I love so much. You could be here at a coaching session with me on Saturday, September the 23rd before playing out there on the field courtesy of Kia who have sponsored this club and ground for over a decade. Cricket has been a huge part of my life since I was a little boy, from the age of about 11 or 12, and I know what an opportunity like this would have meant to me. If you want the chance to be part of this, all you need to do is apply, and we might see each other in September. 